This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from Washington, sitting in for Josh King, here's Matt Bennett. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. I'm Matt Bennett, guest hosting this week for my friend Josh King. In this episode, we're going to be talking to two chroniclers and analyzers of politics. The first is one of our nation's leading political analysts. The second is a veteran of both sides of the political microphone. He served as a press spokesman for the president and is now a magazine writer covering the administration. Bill Schneider is my colleague at the think tank Third Way, where he is a distinguished senior fellow and resident scholar. He is also, so far at least, the only member of our team at Third Way with an Emmy Award, which he won for his nearly 20 years on the air as a senior political analyst for CNN. I think the pithiest, most accurate description of Bill was penned by the Boston Globe, which called him the Aristotle of American politics. And I've been privileged to learn from our own Aristotle for years now. And he also teaches some actual students as a professor at George Mason University. After that, we'll hear from Reed Cherlin, a magazine journalist who has written on politics for GQ, The New Republic, New York Magazine, and others. And before launching that career, Reed was a press flack for politicians, including House members and candidates. He was then the New Hampshire spokesman for a guy named Obama in 2008, and he rode that train to the West Wing where he served as an assistant press secretary. And now, in the interest of full disclosure, Reed is also my stepbrother-in-law. So as you puzzle through that genealogical brain twister, we're going to start with Bill Schneider. Bill, let's begin with a look back at your time on cable news. You were on CNN from 1990 to 2009. What about now? What's your assessment of where cable is, where it's headed, particularly as it relates to political coverage? Well, it's becoming a little bit more strident. Uh, People are looking for news with attitude. Uh, They could get that always from first Fox News back in the 90s and then MSNBC more recently. Uh, CNN has uh, tried to pep up its news broadcasts a bit, um, but without an ideological point of view. And that's a very tough thing to do. They try to do it with personality mostly. Uh, Attitude is uh, a very controversial thing in the news business. It's not supposed to have attitude. It's supposed to be straight reporting. But what Roger Ailes discovered back in the 90s is there's a lot of people, a large mass audience that doesn't just want to hear what happened. They want to hear what Rush Limbaugh or later Rachel Maddow thinks about what happened. That's what they're looking for. And look, this is a very entrepreneurial country. If there's there's a market, there's going to be a product. And in addition, they kind of want to hear their own views kind of echoed back to them. So where does that leave CNN? How do they recover from a years-long slump they've been in as it relates to the to the folks on their right at Fox and on their left at MSNBC, at least in prime time? Well, I'm not at CNN anymore. They have a new president who, as I read the articles about what he's trying to do, he's trying to d- diversify its uh, uh, information a lot. It sounds to me like it's becoming a little more like NPR, which is, of course, very successful. I mean, he has a travel and cooking show. Well, they do that sort of thing on NPR. Uh, he wants more personalities, a little bit more attitude, uh, not wall-to-wall news broadcasts. You know, the stock and trade for CNN was always that when something important was happening in the world, a war in the Middle East, a coup in the Soviet Union. People watch CNN instinctively. They turn to CNN, a terrible school shooting. That's where you went. And people still do that. But it was hard for CNN to sustain audiences day in and day out just on breaking news. So what they've decided to do is have more 
I guess you would call them shows that are more featurey. Well, look, the New York Times has food sections and style sections and fashion sections. So why not a news channel? When you were on CNN, though, uh, people went there not only for the breaking news, like tragedies and, and things playing out in real time, like slow moving car chases in Los Angeles, for example, but but also for election coverage. You were part of an election team that won an Emmy and a Peabody uh, because it was kind of a down-the-middle look at politics. Do you feel like they're still doing that, or are they moving away, do you think? I think they still will do that when it comes to political coverage. I don't think they're going to become either left-wing or right-wing. Of course, the right considers themselves considers CNN left-wing, and the left considers CNN much too right-wing, which is probably where they want to be. And my guess is that's going to continue. Election night is like breaking news. People tune in to CNN election night because they want to find out, well, who won? And they get very impatient if, if CNN doesn't call the races fast enough. Well, they're still going to turn, turn into that because that's real breaking news. And CNN is most trusted on those events because it is down the middle. Uh, remember on Fox News in 2012, they had on Carl Rove who tried to dispute the way Ohio went and he got into an argument with the people who were calling the race. That sort of thing just does not happen at CNN. Were you on the air on the night of the election in 2000 that obviously went horribly awry in many ways, depending on your point of view? Uh, yes, I, of course, was on the air. I remember we started at around 7 o'clock in the evening, and I didn't get off set until about 6 o'clock the next morning. We had called Florida about three times, I think once for Gore, once for Bush, once it was too close to call. Uh, everything was going back and forth. Uh, it was very, very confusing. I'll tell you one thing that people don't realize. Uh a lot of people in Florida thought they had voted for Gore, and they really hadn't. They told the exit polls as they walked out of the polling places that they had voted for Gore. But in fact, they had spoiled their ballot because the voting instructions which were issued, uh, people came down from the Democratic National Committee in Washington, spoke in a lot of churches in uh, Jacksonville and parts of Florida to largely African-American and minority audiences, many of whom had never voted before. And they told them erroneously, make sure you vote on Tuesday and vote on every page. Well, the presidential ballot was two pages long. So they voted for Al Gore on page one, and then they turned the page and they saw a familiar name, Harry Brown. Well, the congresswoman from Jacksonville is Corinne Brown. So they voted for Harry Brown. They voted twice for president. They walked out of the polling place and told our exit polls that they had just voted for Al Gore, which they thought they had, but they didn't because those ballots could not be counted. They overvoted. There were thousands of those ballots, and George Bush ended up winning the state by 537 votes. It's an amazing time and an amazing day. So let's turn to today. What about the folks that CNN and others are covering? It's been said often now that this is the worst political gridlock of our time. Do you agree is this worse than it was in the late 90s or before that? How do you think this stacks up? Uh, I teach classes at George Mason University, and I once had a student ask me, is this the most divided we've ever been as a country? And I said, well, you know, son, we did once have a civil war. And three-quarters of a million, a million Americans were killed in that war. Uh, nothing has, thank God, approached that situation. But the fact is, I think we're probably more divided now than we've been at any time since the Civil War. We have a red America and a blue America, and those states are digging in. Let me give you a simple example. The number of battleground states where the election was within five points of the national vote, in 1960, there were 24 battleground states. Uh, last year, 2012, there were seven. 
The number of battleground states has just diminished. You can count them, Florida, Ohio, Virginia, uh, Colorado. There aren't that many, uh, and they're fiercely competitive. Uh, uh, the country has become redder in red states and bluer in blue states. California and New York do not have a single elected statewide Republican. Texas and South Carolina do not have a single elected statewide Democrat. Texas hasn't had a Democrat statewide since 1994. And the result is it's really becoming kind of two different Americas. I'm not predicting a civil war, God forbid, uh, but there doesn't seem to be any prospect for compromise either. The best we can hope for right now is peaceful coexistence in a divided land. Among the more divisive elements of our politics today is the Tea Party. What do you see happening with the Tea Party? What is the normal arc for that kind of right-wing populism in American life? The normal arc for that sort of a uh, movement outside the two parties is one of the parties picks up its issues and absorbs that movement, uh, and they become institutionalized in the two-party system. I mean, sadly, but it is a fact that the Wallace, George Wallace movement in 1968 got pulled into the Republican Party. That was Richard Nixon's Southern strategy. He reached out to the South. Without being explicitly racist, he ran on law and order. Um, Anti-war movement got absorbed into the Democratic Party. That's what usually happens. They get co-opted. In this case, it's not working exactly that way because the Tea Party is trying to co-opt the Republican Party. So give us a prediction. Do you think that the Tea Party is going to remain in control of the Republicans or effective control of the Republican Party through 2014 or 2016? Or do you think that the establishment will try to seize back control to, to fend off disaster in national and statewide races? I think the establishment will try to seize back control, but it will happen after the Republicans lose in 2016. That will be a terrible shock. That will be equivalent to the shock the Democrats had when Michael Dukakis lost in 1988. They had lost with Jimmy Carter. They had lost with Walter Mondale. Then, to their shock and dismay, they lost with what they thought was a moderate centrist candidate, a candidate who ran on competence, not ideology, Michael Dukakis. After that, Democrats simply said, you know what? We can't go on like this. And Bill Clinton emerged to pull the Democrats back into the center and back towards reality. Uh, that's going to have to happen to Republicans. But first, they got to get their brains beaten out. Then they have to say, we can't go on like this. Then they need a Bill Clinton to emerge. And I don't know who that is at this point. So your prediction is not that they go back to their their standard kind of moderate-ish, um, middle-of-the-road kind of nominee like a Mitt Romney, uh, or uh, John McCain, and you think they'll end up with somebody more radical in 2016? Uh, they, I think it's quite likely that they will. Uh, the Tea Party may not control the nomination, but you know, what Tea Party and conservatives say is something very simple. Look, we went along with the establishment and nominated John McCain in 2008, even though he wasn't our favorite. And then we went along with the establishment and we nominated Mitt Romney in 2012, even though he wasn't our favorite. And look what happened. Look what happened. They lost both of those races. Doesn't that, that carry a message, they're going to say? And uh, obviously they reject the premise that if they nominate somebody too extreme, they'll end up in a Goldwater situation uh, like they did in 1960. Well, Goldwater's argument was a choice, not an echo. And I'm hearing that all the time by people from people on the right. You know, we didn't offer a real choice. McCain wasn't a real conservative. Romney wasn't a real conservative. Okay, let them nominate Rand Paul. I'd love to see it and watch what happens to them.
What about immigration? Do you think that this is another in a basket of issues that will require them to, as you put it, get their brains beaten in before they actually move on it? Or do you think that something will emerge before 2016? Uh, I think it's very difficult to imagine something emerging through the House of Representatives unless the Democrats take the House in 2014, which I think is possible, but not very likely. Uh, Right now, Obama's ratings are just not strong enough to pull his party through, and the Republicans are pretty entrenched. Republicans on immigration are making the same mistake they made 100 years ago. A hundred years ago, they did not welcome immigrants who came mostly from Eastern and Southern Europe, Poles and Hungarians and Jews and Italians. Uh, The Democrats were much more welcoming. They nominated the first Catholic candidate for president who lost badly, Al Smith. But it still showed that they were welcomed. And, of course, the defining issue in those days was prohibition. Uh, The immigrants weren't interested in prohibition, and the Democrats were the party of the wets, the people who wanted to end prohibition, which Roosevelt did. They welcomed those immigrants. Those immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe formed the basis of the Roosevelt coalition that dominated American politics for 50 years, from the 1930s to the 1980s. The Republicans are making the same mistake. They're writing off the new immigrants that are entering the United States, and they could pay an equally severe price. But was there an equally difficult dynamic at play for the Democrats uh, when it came to the 20th century immigration, which is it's difficult to get some of these immigrant groups to vote if they're citizens. And, of course, many of them are not. So was that hard to do or was it much more kind of organic uh, back in those days? It's harder to do now because there are more restrictions on, on immigration and more restrictions on citizenship than there used to be. We didn't even have immigration laws in the late 19th and early 20th century because we needed workers so desperately that anybody who showed up and who was able-bodied and not feeble-minded uh, could get a job. And they were welcome in the United States. That's what Ellis Island was all about. There were no immigration restrictions. Eventually, in the 20s, we passed them with all kinds of national quotas. But today, it's just a lot tougher. Uh, And so the result is, uh, when immigrants come to this country, they have to wait a long time to become citizens. It used to be the case that Mexican workers could come to the United States, pick crops, work in construction, go back to Mexico with their families. And then when the weather warmed up, they could go back to the United States. They went back and forth across the border all the time. Now, once they're here, if they're not legal, they're stuck here. They can't go back. And they have to try to figure out a way to get their family here. It's becoming much more difficult. Let's go back to presidential politics for a moment, and let's shift to the Democrats. Of course, third terms are tough to come by. We don't have them very often, and and the nominee, whether it's uh, a man or maybe even a woman in 2016, is going to be faced with the prospect of trying to convince the voters to give Democrats a third term. How tough is that going to be for her or even him? Depends really entirely on how the economy is doing in 2016. Uh, the economy was pretty good in, 20, in 1988, and that got George H.W. H. W. Bush, the vice president, elected. He was the only vice president to go directly into the presidency since Martin Van Buren. That's a very tough job. I don't think if Hillary Clinton runs, I don't think Joe Biden will run, but look, he might. Uh, Hillary Clinton is far and away the front runner right now. But whatever, whoever the Democrat is, Biden, Clinton, Elizabeth Warren or anybody else, everything will depend on the economy. And the question will be, do voters want a third term? For Barack Obama, right now they don't, uh, mostly because the economy is so, but is is still not charging full speed ahead. What Obama desperately wants is what happened in Reagan's second term, what happened in Clinton's second term. The economy took off. Reagan and Clinton took took office 
in very bad times. And it took a while for the economy to get going. But by the middle of their second term, things started booming. We called it the Clinton boom. Now we call it the Clinton bubble. But that's what got uh, George H.W. Bush elected, and that's what got Clinton's vice president almost elected. The system itself does seem kind of vulnerable at the moment. You talked about how it's going to take Republicans uh, facing a massive loss to shake up their ranks. Um, and uh, Democrats obviously face some vulnerabilities with the overhang of, of the bad economy. But what about the system? What has caused the level of partisanship we're seeing now? And are there systemic changes short of a constitutional amendment that could actually do something about them? Well, the answer to question one, the best answer I ever heard was Bill Clinton in uh, 2002, who said at a booksellers convention, if you look back on the 1960s and you think they did more good than harm, you're a Democrat. If you look back on the 1960s and you think they did more harm than good, you're a Republican. That more or less defines it. Bill Clinton clearly thought the 60s did more good than harm for he was thinking, I'm sure, about African-Americans and women. And George W. Bush obviously thinks the 60s did more harm than good. They certainly did to him. Uh, That's basically the beginning of the division. Uh, And it's just been institutionalized since then. It's grown more and more serious. Today, we have something called political segregation. That's what I call it, and that's what uh, Bill Bishop calls it in his book, The Big Sort. People are living in places that vote overwhelmingly for either Republicans or Democrats, and that's what's dividing the country. Uh, what, What can resolve this? Well, I thought it would take a great national trauma, I used to say in the 1990s. Well, we had one on 9-11, and the country was united for exactly one year until September 2002 when the Bush administration began the Iraq war rollout and all the old divisions resurfaced. We've had four presidents in a row in this country who promised to reunite the country. The first George Bush was kinder and gentler. Clinton was a new Democrat and the third way. The uh, second Bush, George W. Bush, said he wanted to be a uniter, not a divider. And Obama said there's no liberal America and conservative America. There's only the United States of America. They've all failed. The problem isn't them. The problem is the problem. So what's the answer? Uh, Some people have talked about nonpartisan redistricting so that you get uh, less bright red, bright blue districts, more purple districts. Other people have talked about tinkering around the edges with how Congress does its business, making sure they stay in town longer, they work till five o'clock. There's been all kinds of things proposed. Is there, there's probably not a magic bullet, but what is the package of things you think would help fix it? Well, you mentioned a couple of them, and they're being tried right now in California and a couple of other states. California has nonpartisan redistricting. The parties don't control the drawing of district lines, so there's no gerrymandering. But you know what they ended up with? More Democratic districts, because there are so many Democrats in California. Uh, California has nonpartisan primaries. Everybody runs in the same primary, and the top two vote-getters run against each other, even if it's two Democrats or two Republicans. So far, we don't see that that has really made a substantial difference. It could. It's only been one or two elections. But so far, it hasn't had a huge impact. I'm often asked, what will it take to bring the country back together again? 9-11 didn't quite, it worked only for one year. Uh, A great national charismatic leader, well, that's what Obama was supposed to be. Here's a less less happy uh, outlook. It may take the passing 
of my generation, the baby boom generation. Uh, the, the whole division of the United States started in the 60s. The baby boom generation created the great American cultural revolution. It may take the passing of the George W. Bush, Bill Clinton generation uh, for things to really change in this country. Uh, that generation was very, very important, but all the divisions are there. Obama wrote about it in his book. He said he looks upon those divisions as battles fought on college campuses a long time ago, but yet he too has now been caught up in them. Do you think that my generation, the Generation X, I'm right on the borderline, I think I'm one month from being a baby boomer, uh, <laughs> and, and the ones that followed Gen Y, millennials, are less divided than the than the baby boomers? And I do think they are. Uh, certainly on social issues, they're to the, to the left of most other Americans. I mean, they simply can't comprehend why gays can't get married in much of the country. Uh, and uh, But on economic issues, they're not particularly with the old Democratic Party. I think they do carry a new message. And they are, I think, less divided, and soon they will be taking over the country. Uh, one problem with the Gen X and millennials and whatever you want to call these younger generations, I teach them. I can tell you one thing. They're not particularly political. They might, they, they're idealistic, yes. They want to make the world a better place. They want to change the world. But they see politics as the least auspicious way of doing that. If you want to change the world, don't go into politics. I asked them once, who is the figure you most admire in your lifetime? The answer from, in, came out instantly, Steve Jobs. Spoken by people apparently who never met Steve Jobs. Um, what about that? I mean, do you believe that that is driven by a lack of faith in government that is at all-time lows at the moment? Yeah. I mean, there's been a, a trust in government uh, has collapsed. It started collapsing in the late 60s and 70s. It occasionally recovered a bit when the economy was good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, faith in government is just not what it was. And, of course, the old Democratic Party was all about faith in government. There have been three huge coalitions that dominated American politics. The Roosevelt Coalition, he brought together groups that wanted something from the federal government. That was succeeded by the Reagan Coalition. He brought together constituencies like religious Americans and, frankly, Southern white racists and business interests and taxpayers who had a resentment with the federal government. And now we have something that's coming to power. It has come to power, really, in 2012. I call it the New America uh, it's uh, minorities, it's Latinos, Asian Americans, Jewish voters, African Americans, gays, working women, single mothers, educated professionals. Uh, all of these groups, what do they have in common? A commitment to diversity and inclusion, which is what Barack Obama is all about and why I think the Democrats probably will look for a woman in the next election. They believe in diversity and inclusion and they see the Republicans as rejecting that. That more than anything else is what the millennials and Generation X is all about. And do you have a sense of where those generations are in terms of economics? Because uh, what you just talked about really is more about kind of social issues. Um, are they engaged on economic issues? Do they have a sense of um, generational inequity when it comes to debt burdens and entitlement reform? How do they view this? Well, they certainly worry about debt burdens because the average college student today graduates college with $30,000 in debt. That's the average. That's a pretty big debt burden when you're starting your life and your career. Uh, yeah, they worry about economics. They don't have the faith in government that the Roosevelt Coalition did. Uh, and on that, they depart from the traditional orthodoxy of the Democratic Party. They're very entrepreneurial, which is why they ad admire people like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. If you ask them, what do you want to do with your life? They say their ultimate ideal is to become an Internet billionaire. 
Um, they are. That does mean that they're entrepreneurial and they believe in entrepreneurialism in the capitalist system, and they think want it to be unfettered as unfettered as possible. A lot of them sympathize with Edward Snowden because they believe in information wants to be free. Um, so the old view of government that government is there to help you and will do you good. That's kind of worn away, but that's not what this New America movement really is all about. It's not about loving government. It's about standing for diversity and inclusion. Okay, from high-minded and deep analysis to uh, cheap cable news speculation, Mm -hmm. tell us your prediction for who your former colleagues are going to be talking about on election night 2016. Who are the two nominees? Well, you have to say Hillary Clinton. Of course, we don't know if she's going to run, but I think if she runs, she'll walk away with the nomination. There will be challenges, I think, but she'll probably get the nomination. I I like to say that every Democratic uh, primary ends up with one populist and one progressive. She's the populist. If Elizabeth Warren runs, she'll be the progressive. I think Hillary Clinton will get the nomination. Republicans are harder to predict. I think the right is going to put up a big fight on the argument I just mentioned, namely that we tried going to the Senate with McCain and Romney, and it didn't work. But I think in the end, the Republicans probably will nominate Chris Christie uh, because he looks like a winner. He certainly did in New Jersey. The right will grumble. They always grumble. Uh, Christie is a difficult candidate to sell. He has a moderate temperament, but his views are pretty conservative, and his temperament is a little bit of a bully, and that may not go very well with with many voters. Prediction from the Aristotle of American politics. Bill Schneider, thank you so much for joining us in Polyoptics. My next guest, of course, is Reed Churlin. Reed, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks, Matt. You have worn many hats in your career. Most of those are metaphoric. You're actually not a big hat wearer. But let's tie, let's start with your time as a spokesperson for various politicians. Mm-hmm. And Uh, You began your career in the House, and you moved all the way down Pennsylvania Avenue eventually to the White House. But let's talk a little bit about your time in the House. What was that like? You did some work on a House campaign up in New Hampshire. You worked for Congressman Nadler. Uh, Mm -hmm. What experience did you get from the kind of rough and tumble of House press spokesperson? Well, you know, I loved it. And I always used to tell people... The, the sensation that I had on my first day there, which never really faded, which was it's like working at the mall. Um, and I had actually I started briefly in the Senate, which is sort of more sedate. And I had moved for, for Tom Daschle, who promptly lost his reelection. And I got a job across the Capitol complex on the House side. And I started working for Congressman Nadler from New York, a, a great member, a lot of fun to work for. But I didn't realize how open and you know, small D Democratic, the House side office buildings and everything were and and what it it feels like to be a spokesman for someone who is one of a, you know, 200 odd member caucus. Now, we were in the the minority, excuse me, under Tom DeLay, and we didn't have a lot that we could actually get done as um, Democrats. So we just kind of had a lot of fun throwing bombs and writing, you know, outrageous press releases and stuff. But you would get just walking around, you get lost all the time in the buildings. No one knew who you were. You didn't know who anyone else was. You'd get stuck. You'd be, you'd be on, uh, you know, on your way to a meeting. You'd get stuck behind a tour group of 50 children from Omaha in orange T-shirts, and there was just nothing you could do about it. And every, the cafeteria was open to everyone, and you'd be waiting in line behind the same tour group. And it just it kind of it, it was an understanding like you couldn't get anywhere else about how the people's house really works. I mean, it's just fueled by... All these people coming and going, you don't even really recognize the members. 
um, unless they're, you know, super prominent. And, um, you know, it's fun because there's less, you quickly realize that no one really cares what you do so you can have a little bit more fun with it and from that experience with the people's house you went to um you did a house race up in new hampshire Mm -hmm. and from that experience uh you were hired on to the obama campaign to be the spokesman in new hampshire and that's kind of the people's campaign right Mm -hmm. the the new new hampshireites expect that the candidate will come and wash their car and yeah right what was that like right yeah there was a story that i that was told to me that i have told others, and I think it just appeared in, in, in Mark Leibovich's book, This Town, where in the early days in 2007, when Obama was trailing Hillary badly in New Hampshire, um, he showed up on one of the early trips. And one thing that we would build into those trips is to have him meet and greet with the town big shots. And that's, uh, you know, New, New Hampshire, like a lot of the New England states, is, it has a very strong town government structure. And the, you win your votes town by town, and they're sort of traditional grass tops, um, you know, citizens, but who are considered influencers who, the theory goes, need to be won over for you to improve your chances in that town and in that county. So we had him sit down with um, a bunch of the leaders, I think, in Rye, New Hampshire, which is on the seacoast, as they call it. And he talked to them for several hours and asked them all kinds of questions about their lives, came out and thought it was a great meeting. And afterwards, the, our political director asked everyone sitting there, um, so are you ready to commit? And no one was ready to commit to Obama. And, and apparently Obama said to our political director, Mike Cuzzy, what do I need to do, wash their cars? <laughs> and I think he would have done it um, if, if, if that would have been, if that would have done it, but I don't, I don't know that it would have. I mean, New Hampshire is a famously, you know, we call it retail politics, meaning you have to make the sale to every person and it's a cliche up there, but it's not a joke. You know, you will meet someone and you'll say, who are you supporting in the primary? And they'll say, well, I'm, you know, I'm leaning toward Obama, but I've only met him twice. And people really expect to have these people in their homes. They expect to meet them multiple times. Um, And for most of us working on the campaign, you know, we had a lot of New Hampshire people working for us and with us. But if you come from a big state, I come from Maryland, which is pretty populous in the scheme of things. You know, I was never raised to believe that I was going to get to meet the next president right. ever, let alone three times before I made up my mind. So it's just a different way. It's kind of a different metabolism. You work slowly. You have to have a lot of patience and you have to uh, get to know people, which is why the primary feels so special to everyone else. When you're working in it, it can kind of drive you crazy. But from your remove now as a political journalist, what to make of the New Hampshire primary? I mean, after all, you and I worked together on the West Clark campaign. Mm-hmm. And in, in 2004, in that primary, John Kerry came from behind to win in Iowa. And then he just, it was just a cascading series of wins after that, including New Hampshire. So the winner of Iowa either wins New Hampshire or he or she doesn't. And and right. you guys certainly saw that in 08 when right. Obama won Iowa and then lost New Hampshire. It, it, well, well, that's an excellent, it's an excellent question. I, I you know, and, and if the question is, is it worth, is, is it worth it having the New Hampshire primary when right. it's likely to just get swamped by Iowa? Um, you could talk to Bill Gardner, the longtime secretary of state of New Hampshire, and he, if you've got a couple hours and he'll, and he'll tell you why, why it's so important to democracy. I think Yes, it's it, we're still we're still working out the picture of how this works because it's possible to win in Iowa and then just swamp in New Hampshire. It's also possible as we found out for to have a huge momentum building win in Iowa where a, 
Barack Obama, you, you may remember, I think it was a Mark Halperin headline the next day, the most likely next president of the United States, the day after Iowa. It was that big. And then we lost in New Hampshire for a variety of reasons, but I mean, I think you could probably say we just didn't build, we didn't build well enough in New Hampshire. And that dealt us back a huge step but that how we then had to recover. How were you supposed to build any better? I mean, was he supposed to wash cars? I mean, he did an enormous amount of New Hampshire. You were there for well, we God knows how long. Yes, I was there. I was there for about a year and change. Uh, my my memory is that there were certain we we, we didn't want to play the, the the you know the whole mantra of the first Obama campaign was to not play the game to 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 communicate directly with the grassroots to empower people respect empower include. Um, you know, bring people together, let them organize on their own. And we refuse to play a lot of the games uh, that you're supposed to play up there, in, including, you know, courting particular state senators. And as you well know, the New Hampshire House of Representatives has 400 people in it. It's what the fourth largest English speaking legislative body in the world. I believe third. Third. Could yes. be third. Um, and, you know, everyone's a state rep and everyone feels like he or she should be, you know, offered a special advisor position to be put on the steering committee. And we largely didn't play that game. And, you know, I think you could make the argument that that hurt us. Also, Bill and Hillary Clinton had a long relationship with the state. That helped them, too. I do think, though, you should look at the Republican side where, you know, the the Iowa caucus electorate for Republicans now is quite different from the, as I understand it, from the Republican electorate in New Hampshire. Um, you know, there's a huge contingent of evangelicals in Iowa and then, and, and you have, you know, I mean, didn't Santorum win ultimately last time yes, in, yeah. in, in, in Iowa? And then in New Hampshire, it's, I mean, I think he, there is a sort of growing Tea Party contingent that was actually in charge of, this, of the state house for a while, but it's a little bit more of the old flinty Yankee conservative. And so I, particularly on the Republican side, I think you can make the case that it's a different, um, it's a different deal. That said, when you look at, the early states generally and how every four years there's this jockeying between the other states to see who will hold their primaries and caucuses when you could you can make a strong case that the first two states shouldn't be these overwhelmingly white heavily rural states because they just don't reflect the rest of the country uh let's go back to obama for a moment you made a, a point that in 2008 your campaign prided itself on not playing the game and i think that that has been a recurring theme for Obama, both in his two campaigns for president and in the White House itself. And of course, sometimes that works brilliantly for him. It worked, obviously, in his two campaigns. Ultimately, he, he won them both. But there is a lot of chatter in Washington that the Obama White House's refusal to play various games has hurt him in other ways. Right. What do you make of that? And you've been both inside and outside the White House. What's your view? My view on that, and I was just having this conversation with an editor, actually, uh, and, and I may write about it in, in more length, is that it's hard to distinguish the game playing from the real work of governing. And I think it's a more confusing picture when you're in the inside than, than people would like to believe. So, for example, in the first term when I was in the White House, there's a lot of belly aching about why won't Obama hang out with the members of Congress. Why wouldn't he have them over for dinner? He never he never socializes. You know, Washington used to be a social town. The president used to schmooze people. Um, just this year, I think they canceled the congressional picnic. And, um, you know, I think to Obama, not that I know him well, and I want to be clear about that, 
so this is speculation. The idea of just kind of backslapping and buttering people up and, 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 you know, getting on the good side of these subcommittee chairmen, that feels like game playing. It kind of feels like a waste of time. To a lot of other people in Washington, including the people who make laws, that feels like essential work. And they just they want to be heard and respected. Um, and it hasn't helped. I don't think it's helped the cause of relationships on Capitol Hill. I also don't think it's really to blame for any particular failings as much as the slighted would-be dinner guests would have you believe. The other big one, of course, is um, is relationships with the press. And um, when you're on the inside, it can often feel like it's a game of gotcha and that it's the daily news cycle is insignificant, that it's just passing clouds, and that the more you can keep your head down and keep focused on your work, the better off you're going to be. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. And 2008 proved that if you kind of ignore what old campaign manager David Pluff called the bedwetters, um, you can really focus on your work and just prevail. But there's a danger there in that, you know, if you learn if you learn that lesson too well, then you end up sometimes ignoring actual legitimate uh, conflicts or, 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 you know, mini scandals that you should have been quicker to respond to. Or, or maxi scandals. I mean, let's be clear, you were the spokesman for the White House uh, throughout the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And uh, you were there for the kind of ups and downs of that experience. And then you were gone, uh, for the most part, during the implementation phase, mm-hmm. which they are now facing uh, real issues regarding how the White House handled all of that. And do you think it's that instinct to ignore the bedwetters, to make sure that they're focused on the, the bigger political picture, which seemed to be the case at least before the 2012 election? Has that contributed to the kind of hole that they dug for themselves that maybe they're just beginning to climb out of now with the ACA? I think I would separate the two things a little bit, but not entirely. Like you said, I wasn't there for the implementation, and I don't just say that to make myself look better. I just don't know that much about it. Right. Um, but I think this kind of thing happens with bureaucracies. You task someone who's ta- with doing something, and she tasks 100 more people, and it fans outward very quickly, and you have a lot of people responsible for a lot of different things. Nobody's responsible for the whole thing in a way that's tangible or accountable, and then in the in the you know in the weeks running up to whatever your deadline is, you say, "Are we ready?" And the person you're asking just turns around and asks their people, "Well, are we ready?" And they all ask their people, "Are we ready?" And they just kind of some yes answers filter up, and then the people at the bottom um, don't have enough of a view of the whole thing to know whether you're ready or not. So the whole there's a kind of a reporting problem there, but that's going to happen in a big bureaucracy and it's going to be embarrassing and it's going to be a problem and it's going to be a big deal. And no, I don't think it's Obama's Katrina and I don't think it's a, you know, scandal, quote unquote, but it is a problem and it's something you need to acknowledge and fix. And, you know, I think that if they get the website fixed, I think in time things will be okay if the law works and I think it probably will work. Um, But I do think there's an element of not wanting to engage too deeply in the day-to-day criticisms um, that kind of can lead you to just sort of tune tune everything out and, and you know, to borrow the phrase from Nate Silver's book, um, miss the signal for the noise, as it were. 
And, and do you think there was a little of that at play here when they they kind of responded initially to some of the problems by saying, oh, these were just glitches and um, it was just too many people too coming many people, online? Right. Um, now, obviously, they have a war room and they're taking it very seriously indeed. And basically everybody in the White House, including the president, is pretty focused on this. Right. Uh, is it your sense, recognizing that you were not there and you don't know, but you know how the place works, was it your sense that those things were contributing to the trouble? You know, I don't think it helps. I don't know that it, it was a cause, but I think it's an amplifier. And I think, you know, people have been talking for a long time now or excuse me, I should say, for the last several years about relationships, the relations between the Obama White House and the press corps that covers it as being, um, has having deteriorated. And so there's a hostility there that's probably, um, you know, I don't think there's an administration that sits in the White House that has great loving relationships with the press corps. But um, there is, with the rise of, you know, social media and technology that allows the president to tweet, for example, there's kind of this feeling that, you know, answering every demand of the network news correspondence is not the best use of your time because who's really watching the network news these days anyway? It's all satellite radio and Twitter feed and, you know, all that stuff. Um, I think there's a disdain and I think there is a bit of a tuning out that goes on. And I think, you know, when I was there, I remember I was part of it. We didn't, I wasn't there when the bill launched, but I was there when it started falling apart in Congress. And, you know, day to day, you're you're trying to get through your day. You're trying to make sure you get done the most important thing that you have to get done. And that a lot of times just involves kind of throwing up your hands at these phone calls that are coming in, or, you know, you kind of dismiss the bad news clips that come around as just kind of haters, people who are after you. Um, You know, I remember sitting in the White House uh, press briefing room, during one of the briefings, and then Press Secretary Robert Gibbs is getting asked a question, and he sort of objected to the premise, saying, how come you all only report on bad news? And and I think it was, um, I want to say it's Peter Mayer from CBS, um, raised the old chestnut, you know how we report on planes that land safely. And, and everyone laughed. And, you know, I think, and I remember feeling very annoyed by that. And I think both sides are right. I think it is I think it is acceptable to be frustrated with um, the fixation of, you know, media on on scandal and things that go wrong um, when you feel like you have success stories to share. Now, being on the other side, I think it's also acceptable to be interested in producing the kind of stories that people want to read and people want to hear. And, I mean, you might amend the airplane statement to say, you know what kind of interest people have in stories about planes that land safely – Media uh, media outlets are businesses too, and you know we kind of we've taken for granted the kind of the texture and tone of newscasts, um, but that's what people tune in to hear about. It's the train crash in New York. It's the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. It's the what the heck is going on with the healthcare launch. They're not that interested. They're not tuning in to the newscast or opening up the paper to read in depth about all the things that are going right. Now, partisans or sympathizers certainly want ammunition and all that kind of thing, but they have a better way of, or they have other ways of getting it. And so I think it's just, it's a little bit of a conundrum and and, and it, there's no easy solution to that. In the tension between the press and the White House that you reference, uh, one minor skirmish that's erupted recently goes directly to the title of this show, which is polyoptics. The 
White House press, uh, in particular the still photographers, have complained bitterly to the press office that they are being denied access to the president and to important presidential events and presidential moments. And instead, the White House is feeding them photos from the official White House photographer, Pete Souza. Um, you obviously have been on the other side of this. What's your view of that controversy? You know, I think it's a legitimate gripe on on behalf of the photojournalists. And there are some extremely talented people working in that photo pool. And even if there weren't, it's still a constitutional issue, I think, of or not, maybe perhaps not a constitutional issue, but just a it's an issue of, you know, press freedom and of, you know, checks against propaganda. And I understand that. Um, but this is, an, again, another example of where I think as the White House, you tend to kind of just dismiss it as bellyaching because if, you know, if Obama's doing something and there's a photo of it, does it really matter kind of who took it? Um, and you also know that you know, reporters and photographers generally, as a rule, never will say that they're satisfied with the amount of access that they get. So there's really no, no, there's no short of letting them into his bedroom in the morning when he gets up to brush his teeth. There's not going to be a lot that's really going to satisfy them. But that's not an excuse for pissing them off. It's not helpful, and it's probably not the right thing to do. My sense is that they're going to work on this somehow. I know there was kind of a brouhaha because after they complained, uh, the uh, Sousa, the official photographer, tweeted out a photo of all the other photographers being let into the Oval Office as kind of a um, de- you know, demonstration that maybe their gripes weren't so um, legitimate. And, and I, th- I think they are legitimate. I just, again, you know, I think everyone is trying to figure out what, what this sort of direct engagement technology means for people. I, to my knowledge, I don't think we have the president Instagramming. But if you think about the fact that you could probably have President Obama Instagramming his day, it raises a lot of structural questions about having a pack of 25 photographers kind of is there an expiration date on that whole model? Right. And obviously they would argue, uh, look, obviously there are some things that you can't have the press photographers involved with. The picture from the Situation Room on the night mm-hmm. of the Bin Laden raid. I don't think anybody argues there should have been a bunch of uh, press photographers in there. In fact, uh, the Sousa, the famous Sousa photo had to be photoshopped because there was a highly classified document sitting on the table in front of Hillary Clinton. Right. But, uh, but they would say, look... Sometimes the president looks bad, and that may be news, and you're not going to get that from the White House photographer, so we need to be part of it. And I think that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, I was looking at, I think it was Politico magazine has a slideshow up of handout photos of the years or, or photography at the White House of the years. And they they show, um, it's a sort of photographic historian who put it together, and I'm I'm forgetting his name, but you should look it up if you're interested. They show a photograph from the Wilson administration of... President and Mrs. Wilson, and he's signing a bill, or he's holding a pen, and this was after he had had the debilitating stroke. Um, and there had been basically a couple of years, I think it was, where there really was no photographic or photographer access to the president. People were basically, and I think probably more or less correctly, assuming that the president was kind of incapacitated, and they staged this photo to make it look like he was working and capable, and they handed it out. And you know the, the the historian on the on the political slideshow says this may be the first handout photo, and you can definitely see what the uh, what the impulse is there, and you can see why it would encourage bad habits. You want to get you want to get 
or as the White House, you want to get your point of view out there. You want to show the president looking good. You know, he's throwing a football. He's greeting kids. He's signing important bills. And you're not necessarily getting him, you know, gripping the bridge of his nose in frustration as, you know, a, uh, an initiative on Capitol Hill goes down in flames. Now, sometimes they do put out photos like that. But, you know, I think the photographer's complaint is, um, I, you know, I think it's I think there's merit to it on those grounds. Um Apart from which, as a consumer of news and slideshows, I just love looking at the pictures, whether they're of the White House or Capitol Hill. You know, we're moving, I think, more and more towards becoming a visual culture. I think that's something that Instagram and Facebook are doing for us. And we're used to sharing photos. And people want to see photos. And I, and I think just as a, as a basic commercial proposition, I think it's appropriate for The New York Times, the AP, AFP, um, Reuters to want to be in there and have new pictures to move Um for their for their customers, the one thing that I just remembered this morning as I was thinking about this was that Pete, who Pete Souza, who's the official photographer, was of course a press photographer himself. He worked for the Chicago Tribune for a long time. He's a he's a great guy. I don't know him well, but he's he, he's quite nice and he's you know popular among his colleagues who were all cheered when he was given the job. And now they're um, sort of in this conflict. But I remembered that. Uh, early, early on in, I, I want to say February 20, February 2007, right um, when Obama was on his announcement tour, he did his big announcement in Springfield, Illinois. He went to Iowa and then he went to New Hampshire. And um, I was not officially working for the campaign yet. I was on a sort of tryout basis as the spokesman in New Hampshire. And we did a day's worth of, event, of events with Obama around the state. And we did the traditional New Hampshire house party. In addition to a big rally and a Main Street walk, we took him to a house party at the home of a state senator in Nashua. This is exactly the kind of thing you're supposed to do in New Hampshire, and we wanted to show that um, he was committed to that endeavor. But, of course, the problem with presidential candidates doing house parties is you're traveling with a press pack about the size of the invited guest list. And they just can't fit in a normal person's home without breaking all the china and inconveniencing inconveniencing everyone, and it kind of interferes with the homey ambiance. It's kind of the whole point of the thing. So you end up striking a kind of compromise where you bring in either you break it down into a pool or you have people sharing photos and you have a uh, have a pool uh, reporter, um, or you kind of let everyone in and then kick them all out. And this being early on, when we weren't incredibly well organized in terms of how our pool rotations were going to work and how distribution of things would work, so we struck some kind of arrangement where we were going to let people in and then kick them out. And that, that fell to me, the kicking out. And we let everyone in. And at the time, Pete Souza was a Tribune photographer. And he wouldn't leave when I, when, I, <laughs> when I asked the photographers to leave. And he said, I haven't made a single picture. Uh, I remember him using that phrase. I mean, it was incredibly crowded. He said, I'm shooting over people's shoulders. I haven't made a picture of Obama. What do you want me to do here? I'm not leaving until I make a picture. Because he had a job to do. You know, he needed pictures that could run in the trib the next day. And we had some heated words about it. He was not pleased with me. Eventually, he left. I think I prevailed upon some other staffers to help me get him out of there. Um, and I remember the next day, on the cover of the Concord Monitor, one of the major papers in the state, there's a picture of Obama doing his Main Street walk in Concord. And the only thing you could see around him were the photographers and because they mobbed him and they wouldn't obey our instructions to stay behind this little puny yellow rope we'd set up. And there in the middle of the frame was Sousa 
looking pissed off, holding his camera, basically sharing equal billing as I remember it in this photo with the candidate. And I just felt so pissed off that I had let these photographers run roughshod over these events that I was supposed to be stage managing. But, you know, it all depends on your perspective. Now I'm a journalist and now Pete's the official photographer. And, you know, everyone's got needs they're trying to take care of. You are lucky that you didn't end up in a photo blown up in the West Wing of you missing a shot on the White House basketball court or something after doing that to Sousa. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I want to turn to your journalism at least real quickly. Uh, uh-huh. You have written some really interesting pieces from your kind of dual perspective as a as a journalist and a former White House staffer. One of which, uh, in one of which, you argued that the White House press briefings, the daily briefings you talked about a moment ago, should be eliminated. Talk a little bit about that quickly. I just think that the institution of the White House press briefing has basically outlived its usefulness as a day-in, day-out exercise. I think it's more of an exercise, or it's an exercise that is better suited to when there's actual news. So when there's something happening like the website drama that's going on now, where there are day-to-day updates, I think it's probably important to have. But you go through these slack periods of the year where there's really nothing going on, and um Pretty much everyone, because of the internet, knows what the news of the day is by 9 a.m., but you take this break in the middle of the day to bring all the reporters into the room, the press secretary comes out, and they just fight with each other for an hour, and it's really vitriolic and gets everyone annoyed at everyone else, and I don't think it really produces much. You know, reporters, White House correspondents who go to it every day, anonymously usually, complain bitterly about it. It's boring. It's a waste of time. They'd rather be doing actual reporting. And they never really use those quotes from Carney or whoever the spokesperson happens to be because they're so kind of TV ready and often polished beyond the point of being you know, usable in a story. What would be the alternative? Uh, you talk about what insiders call the gaggle. How would that work? Well, the gaggle is a similar activity, but it's off camera and it's much more informal. Basically, everyone just crowds into the press secretary's office and they lob questions at him and he answers them. But because it isn't on camera, it, there, for, for, there's a lot less posturing uh, for whatever reason. People are much more to the point. It moves more quickly. And people don't all ask the same question over and over again, which is one of the problems with the televised briefing. And that's that the network correspondents all want to get tape of them asking the question of the day. Whereas in the gaggle, there's no tape of anyone asking the question, so everyone just uses the answer, which is the part we're supposed to care about. But the way that the briefing has evolved as a sort of televised pageant every day, there's all this posturing and sort of the reverse shot of the of the correspondent looking hard-boiled and having chewing on the pencil or whatever it is. Um, and it just it's kind of a waste of time. Uh, I cannot let you go without talking about perhaps your greatest uh, scoop, which was about uh, the Sesame Workshop, of course. Uh, what mm-hmm. else for a political journalist? Um, talk about the rapid response operation at Sesame Street. Well, this was, uh, I think, about a year ago when allegations started to surface about um, the uh, Kevin Clash, the voice of Elmo, that he had had inappropriate sexual relationships with younger men, with with minor, with, with uh, you know men who were in their teens. And um, what impressed me was that Sesame responded with kind of the perfect response. They said, you know what, when these allegations came to light, we, um, we conducted our own investigation and we found no allegations of, or, or no substantiated um, evidence of wrongdoing. Nevertheless, we've put him on leave. End of story. We're moving on. And I looked into it and it turns out that there are a lot of 
experienced political hands who work at Sesame Street. And you wouldn't think that, but they, um, the uh, in, in, sitting around the table in the boardroom um, and in the senior staff meetings are, are veterans of the Reagan and Bush White Houses who, who kind of zealously guard the Sesame brand. Um, you know, there were these, even before the famous New Yorker cover of Bert and Ernie, I think there was a change.org petition asking Ernie and Bert to come out of the closet. And that's actually a serious thing when you run Sesame Street is that how do you handle that? And so it's important because you have one of the most cherished brands across the globe that you to be able to protect its integrity. And I just thought it was a it was a fun story. Now, as it happens with with Mr. Clash, more accusers came out. And I think he ultimately did leave the show. And um, there there was at that point. There's nothing that a good rapid response operation could do. This was in the early phases, but I was still impressed. And how did the Republicans in their rapid response operation respond themselves when uh, Mitt Romney made his attack on Big Bird during the debates? Well, you know, in in perhaps the best illustration of how professional they are, they wouldn't really talk about that with me. Um, I know. (laughs) The Omerita of Sesame Street. Yes. They, um, you know, I know they weren't pleased to have the headache. But it had been a big year because because Romney invoking Big Bird um, because of the clash allegations. And there was sort of a weariness and kind of a, a hot temperedness or not a hot temperedness, but a bit of bit of a short fuse with some of the people there that I talked to that it was like talking to a to a congressional office or a political campaign. They didn't want to mess around and they wanted to sh- shut down your story if they could, which I think is appropriate. The hard bitten pros inside Sesame, uh, Big Sesame. Uh Reed Turlin, thank you so much for your fascinating insights, and thank you for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks for having me.